Welcome to Girls Camp. I'm your host, Haley Rawl. I hope you're having a happy Wednesday. I always imagine you're listening on a Wednesday morning in your car on your commute because that's when I usually listen to my podcasts. But happy day, whether it's a Wednesday or any other day of the week or any other time or any other setting. I love to think about all the different ways people listen to this podcast. And imagine, you know, maybe you're doing the dishes, maybe you're just going on a walk. I just think podcasts are so special because it really feels like an intimate chat with thousands of people at once, which is really special. Anyway, quite a tangent there, but I am very excited, as always, as per usual, about today's conversation. It is with a good friend of mine, Zach Hayward. Zach married my longtime best friend, Jacqueline Covey, and I interviewed Jacqueline. I talk about this a bit in our conversation, but I interviewed Jacqueline back long ago at the beginning of the podcast about mixed faith marriage dynamics, and that is kind of the focus of Zach and I's conversation today. So we talk about what it was like to be on the believing side of a mixed faith marriage dynamic, and then what it was like when he left because he since left the church. I think it's a hugely important conversation with really good insight for anyone in any type of mixed faith dynamic, which is probably all of us, if not almost every single one of us, post-Mormons at least, or even people who've left another high demand religion, just engaging in the community of the world is usually mixed faith. We're oftentimes all the time having to deal with people who believe differently than us. So I find this episode very applicable. I will give you a little tidbit that may keep you on the edge of your seat, which is that Zach cries in this episode, which he has not done, according to him, for years. And I've never seen him cry in all of our friendship. And I don't think I cried. I maybe teared up in course of the interview, but I definitely cried while editing. He speaks just really vulnerably to how difficult this all can be. Faith transitions and what it can do to marriages and families. And I really appreciate him for that. And of course, we also have some fun and laughs along the way. Don't you worry. By way of campfire chat, hmm, I always have so many things I want to say throughout the week and I need to write them down because when it's Tuesday night before podcast Wednesday and I'm recording my intro, I inevitably forget literally everything. So can't think of any significant updates Besides just to say merch is still in the works. It's coming sooner rather than later. I've been showing little sneaky peekies on Instagram. So stay tuned. Gonna do a fun giveaway. Oh, one thing I did want to talk about. I finished a documentary last night called The Deepest Breath. And it's on Netflix. It's about free diving. And I found the whole documentary really spiritual for me. In ways that I'm actually having difficulty even articulating. So I'm not going to get so into it, but I do recommend it. I think it's phenomenally done. It's really beautiful. And it just speaks to humanity and the human spirit. 
and so much about just the human experience in this microcosm of the free diving world. So I highly recommend The Deepest Breath on Netflix. Okay, one last recommendation. This is a podcast series that Jacqueline actually recommended to me and it's called The Retrievals. It's by New York Times and it's about a case, not really a case, but an incident that happened at an IVF clinic, an infertility IVF clinic at Yale pretty recently during COVID. And it is super fascinating. It talks about women's pain, how women's pain is interpreted in a medical sense, in an emotional sense. It struck a ton of chords for me because I went through IVF myself, but I think it's just fascinating regardless. So I also would recommend the retrievals. And now I'm going to let you listen in on this conversation with Zach. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you have a laugh, have a cry. Here we go. Welcome, Zach, to Girls Camp. <laughs> I'm here. We're jumping right in. <laughs> you didn't even give me I a, didn't even give you well, any time. I had a cue. I told you what my cue was. What's the cue? I, 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 I'm trying to be funny. <laughs> it's about damn time because I've referenced you a lot on the podcast as well. Honored every time. You and I have known each other. It's been a long time. Since like early high school. Yes. We didn't really know each other very well in high school, though. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if we spoke to each other we in We didn't school. date. <laughs> that's for sure we should have we should have <laughs> we missed big, our chance big regret <laughs> we knew of each other in high school mm-hmm. and then you ended up dating Jacqueline when I was 19 mm-hmm. so I was hanging out with you two all the time I went on my mission you visited me on the mission we did we've been BFFs ever since yeah and now here we are here we are we've lived together we have lived together not you and I you to, and I us for and Jacqueline and, and Bentley. And Bentley yes. Yeah. yeah. How much closer can you get? <laughs> <laughs> I'm super excited to get into it today. We are going to be talking about Zach's story, most specifically focusing on the mixed faith marriage dynamic with you being on the believing side mm-hmm. of the mixed faith marriage dynamic. So that's where we're headed. But before we jump into it, and we also have some good listener questions to talk about along those lines. But before we jump into it, we need to hear... A little bit about your Mormon story, a condensed little context of what it was like growing up Mormon, how you related to Mormonism. Let's start there. What was your Mormon upbringing like? Yeah, yeah. So grew up in a very Orthodox, devout Mormon family. I would say our like identity was very like steeped in Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Um, being the oldest of five kids, it was also you know kind of my responsibility to be a good example. But yeah, I mean, I had, you know, I I still recall like really powerful spiritual experiences I had praying, like, you know, will I serve on a, you know, serve a mission and getting strong promptings and that just being like a theme. I mean, we were doing baptisms for the dead before football games. You know, we were like (laughs) wearing your church clothes to school, just, just so everybody knew, or maybe you just didn't have time to change into your Street no, clothes. Hair still wet. And kind <laughs> yeah. of like a virtue signaling, like, we're pretty good. This is like, might have been why we won state so much. Um, Are you a state champion? Well, I mean, for time, you know, different, various sports, but yeah, short answer is yes. <laughs> Those <laughs> so baptisms for the dead, life hack, if anyone's in high school listening. Baptisms uh, for the dead will help you win football worked. games. It's hard to, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. So, mission, you know, had an extraordinary experience 
Where'd on you go my on mission. Your mission. I was in Japan, Kobe, Japan, and came home. Jacqueline, you know, we went to high school together. Rewinding a little bit, we never dated in high school, but actually kind of hit it off and flirted a bit on Pioneer Trek. <gasps> I didn't know this. You didn't? I didn't know this about Pioneer Trek. We have a very like quintessential Mormon yeah. like story. The first time you two talked to each uh-huh. other was Pioneer Trek. Pioneer Trek. <gasps> yeah. Wish you had photos. We, we've got a couple. You know, me pulling her older brother over the over the river in a handcart, and I no think way. one of us. Just somewhere in the dirt out in Wyoming. Um, I'm going to have to get those. But yeah, like sat next to each other on the bus on the way home. Little, little, uh, you know, hand touching. Mm-hmm. Just very, very G-rated. Yes, absolutely. But that was, that was fun. I mean, I remember visiting her like after going to the temple and like just hanging out. Like, you went to the <laughs> temple a lot, it a seems. A lot of temple time. So came home from my mission and we, you know, I became an ordinance worker just you had so much to, I guess, look forward to in terms of like my future in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, Were there any cracks in your Orthodox Mormonism as a teenager leading up to a mission? Do you feel like you related really just positively to Mormonism or were there any issues that you saw or discomfort or dissonance mm-hmm. with the Mormon stuff? So in hindsight, it's, I think, easier to identify. But when I was in it, honestly, I don't think so. I, I, it was, I would have done anything that the church said. And granted, just, you know, white cis male, like I was, I was a perfect mm-hmm. um, candidate for the church. Like the church was built for people like me. And so a lot of those, you know, very problematic, exclusionary, you know, things weren't even close to hitting my radar. Yeah. Um, and you were in Provo. I don't think we said that explicitly, but Provo. we were in the yeah. same high school. So you went to Timview High School, heart of it all. Right. I, I mean, I feel similarly. Obviously, my experience was different in some ways, but especially when you're in such a homogenous setting like mm-hmm. Provo, I assume all your friends were Mormon. Yeah. It was just what was going on. There's very little room to question anything. You're just kind of in the, the fishbowl and had a very positive experience growing up in the church. Honestly, that was not to skip forward too much, but even when I, spoiler alert, like left, it was challenging to imagine my kid's future experience not growing up in the church, even though I knew it couldn't be the same for them because of what I knew, came to know, but it was just this kind of, yeah, fairy tale. Like it was so perfect. Like this, this Richard Rohr talks about this and um, following upward, but that first half of life, just a perfect container growing up. You just, you know, your wholesome night games on the weekend. Everyone's, you know, viewing the world and believing and doing life very similar to one another. Yeah, absolutely. There's really not a need to question. And especially like you're saying, I think a lot of mine and Jacqueline's rub and our friends and our friend group, the women especially, The rub is oftentimes, even that early on, has to do with gender, whether it's around modesty stuff or even just, you know, mistreatment Mm -hmm. where... The lack of women representation. Exactly. Whereas a, yeah, white cis male, you weren't probably rubbing up against that. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, Mormonism was deeply, deeply intertwined in your identity Mm -hmm. and in your family culture and in everything. It sounds like it was a huge identity piece for you. 
Yeah, it was almost as though we, we were like Mormons and then Haywards. But yeah, and just my mission experience, like not in a million lifetimes would I have ever thought of the possibility of hypothetically maybe ever leaving mm. the church. Yeah. Um, it just was, it wasn't even an option. Like what, what's the point of life, marriage without the, the church? So definitely want to underscore that. Yeah. Like I, I still kind of get chills thinking about it. And honestly, like prepping, kind of thinking about this interview, it was bringing up, I, I was having kind of these thought stoppers. It was bringing up, I think just some major trauma Mm. Um, that I went, you know, I, I worked through with counseling and couples counseling therapy, but st- still definitely a lot of things to unpack and process. Cause it's, I mean, it was the worst thing that yeah. I think I'll hopefully I don't have to go through anything more terrible. Yeah, than absolutely. That crisis absolutely. Faith. You know, it's an interesting thing. I really appreciate you speaking to this because sometimes I think having more, I don't know, cracks in the Mormonism thing earlier on in life can actually spare people in later faith crisis or Mm -hmm. transition. It's not like I was necessarily imagining a world where I wasn't Mormon. I planned to be Mormon, but I had enough experiences that almost required me to think differently, to kind of tweak doctrinal things. You know, Mm -hmm. I just had more impetus to do that and it sounds like you really didn't have much even pressure or anything pushing against the Mormon stuff so Mm -hmm. why would you have thought any differently in ways that sometimes people are forced to maybe earlier on based on family members based on where they live etc just growing it like the like you said the homogenous environment of like Provo like there's very few cities that have less diversity than than Provo in the world. Anyone believing different, behaving different, dressing different, eating different, like drinking, like it just, uh, I never really saw much of that. Yeah, same. It's really kind of crazy the further you get from it. And now you're living here in San Diego. We're recording from sunny San Diego. Mm. But when you're not even exposed to just living in a place where people aren't predominantly Mormon that's uh-huh. different which is crazy right <laughs> because that's that's also a unique experience in and of itself Mormonism aside just mm-hmm. to live in a community that's that saturated with people who all believe the same thing and the lack of diversity in all ways across ethnicities and it's just again very homogenous right but what I remember our family we, we would hold family home evenings literally every Monday, mm-hmm. obviously church every weekend. If we were traveling, we were, you know, finding a meeting house on Sunday. If it was over the weekend, you know, family scripture study every night, family prayer every night. And it wasn't like a forced march by any means. My parents, I think did that very well, but it was just a part of our family culture. And I started picking up on like some of my best friends who were in the ward, you know, and they weren't going like that hard. <laughs> and I think some of that contributed to just the an added layer of that superiority complex that Mormons have, you know, just believing that we're doing, you know, literally what God wants us to like, we're the chosen people living the only one true, only, you know, life and way to get back to God. It was a really like privileged place to, yeah. to be. What was the mission like? So you mentioned you had a great experience again, no cracks in the, in the thinking in the Mormonism yeah. through the mission either. 
incredible mission experience. It's so obviously so sub- like subjective. Um, everyone's mission was amazing. Their mission president walks on water, miracles left and right. But I really had a crazy good experience. <laughs> You're like, no, I really did. Uh, I was better than most people. <laughs> Some things that are still a little tricky to deconstruct. Uh-huh. Looking back, like, whoa, how did we? And I'm, you know, after going through through this, like, very skeptical now. So anyway, to answer your question, though, so being in Japan, you know, predominantly not Christian, we came across this one guy who was actually Canadian and I was with a native companion. So I was kind of leading discussions with this, you know, English speaking investigator. And he just wanted to kind of poke holes in like our, you know, lessons, mm-hmm. belief, one like, yeah. yeah, he came to our, our lessons with just pages of what I interpreted at the time was just anti-Mormon literature. Why the Book of Mormon, the historicity of the Book of Mormon just doesn't hold up. Gold plates, Book of, you know, Joseph Smith. I remember talking to my zone leaders and they were like, yeah, probably not. Just don't waste your time with this guy. I was like, yeah, like he's crazy. <laughs> like, and, but it really, it started to weigh, you know, weigh on me. And I remember just sleepless nights just in the mountains of just hot, hot Japan. It was in the, in the summer in this really remote area, no air conditioning, and just like trying to, I guess, calm nerves and just find some answer. Cause we didn't have iPads or like internet. Yeah. You had no internet cell phones. Access, you could, yeah. you couldn't call home or like, you know, chat with like someone online. Like, yeah. so it was prayer and just dusty old enzyme articles in the cupboards. Like, but I remember finally finding a couple things that kind of helped ease those worries. And then, you know, you know, lack of a better term, we brushed it under the rug and kept going. Didn't really look back. Fast forward, maybe six months later, another investigator who started getting into, again, what I thought, anti-Mormon stuff. He was so solid. And then and it's funny looking back, it was like, oh, he's just been deceived. Satan got him. Like, it wasn't he dark. His countenance was, uh-huh. but. When he had just gotten on Google and yeah. seen kind of the the history. <laughs> right. The, what actually happened. What was actually like, happened, yeah. And I had not heard of, you know, didn't you know that Joseph Smith was looking in a hat when he was reading the Book of Mormon? I was like, this is crazy, man. Listen to yourself. You're going to trust this guy on the internet over us, like <laughs> yeah. 19-year-olds? <Over> me? <laughs> like, we got a high school degree, man. Like, Oh, it's a trip. Looking it back, is. it's such a trip. How little, I would say, the average missionary knows, especially someone like you or like right. myself who are incredibly intelligent (laughs) (laughs) we are so smart (laughs) people who thought we probably thought we knew i thought i knew everything yeah and we had gone to seminary our whole lives we had seminary release time really just you would think if there were people to be educated on their religion at that age and in Mm -hmm. that stage it would be people who were so steeped in it and really obviously knew very little about the actual history because the Joseph Smith hat thing, for example, the church talks about that now. I Mm -hmm. mean, you can find that, but of course it was never actually really taught to us. Yeah. Never heard of that. Yeah. Nor I until BYU after my mission. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you had some of this exposure maybe on your mission, right? but you were able to find answers that maybe caused some discomfort, but ultimately still true believing Mormon. It really, yeah, it it never really cracked any of my kind of foundation. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like, well, we lost one, you know, and probably behaved really poorly Mm -hmm. (laughs) to them in that case, like doing everything wrong, very little compassion, understanding, listening, and 
it's you know too bad but i know yeah, yeah. We so didn't, we really didn't honestly know i don't think we didn't I have the tools, any better. We to, didn't have the tools yeah. to do that. it was either it was just preach and it was outside of our purpose that was not our purpose as missionaries our purpose was to either bring them back or cut them off ultimately yeah. Okay, so let's talk about you and Jacqueline. So you got home from your mission. You had been writing Jacqueline on your mission. Yep. The whole time? The whole time. You dated briefly before. Mm, Not even we were, dated. No, we had crushes on each other. Kissed her on the cheek. That Only was as far as it cheek. went. Oh, I didn't realize that. So it was, it was actually nice because we didn't have that kind of physical relationship. So I wasn't you know worried mm-hmm. with uh, her dating other dating while I was gone and it was just, yeah, more casual, good friendship. I remember the first letter she sent me in the MTC, it was like weekly. And if you know Jacqueline, like oh yeah, perfectionism, Poetry. the handwriting, like, but long, really intimate letters that kind of just struck a different chord. I remember the first letter I was walking up eighth floor MTC reading it and it just like hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, this is something special. And we got to the point through just snail mail, like we couldn't email until the last six months of my mission. Or I was like, definitely seriously going to date. Good chance I'm going to marry yeah. her. You were kind of realizing yeah. that was probably on the horizon. And then you did marry her. <laughs> and it's worked out. But also just if you're in that mindset of a missionary, it's like this person, she's caring about what I'm, I'm doing the most important work in the world. And like, she's all for it. You're going to probably fall in love. With. Yeah, totally. Fortunately, had a lot more in common and yeah. connection than just letters. But that was uh, something that we could that we shared. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I think there's something really beautiful about getting to know someone through letters mm-hmm. and without the physical element. But yeah, when you're on a mission, the judgment just can't be that objective. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because you're starving for affection, oh, you're yeah. starving for attention, you need support. So it probably I know it does because I've I had similar experiences. It just colors the relationship already in a really interesting way. So you get married pretty soon after your mission. It was less than a year, right? Yeah, nine months. So you're married. Let's talk about when things started to turn mixed faith. So to anyone listening, please go listen to Jacqueline's episode, Miss Mixed Faith Marriage Mentor, and I'll post that. It would be really useful to hear Jacqueline's side of things as well. But I would love for you to kind of start in the marriage. We're just, you know, Jacqueline sheds more light on her upbringing. But you both got married in the temple. You were true believers. You were planning to be true believers Mm -hmm. for the rest of eternity. When did things start to shift? And what was that like from your perspective as Jacqueline's faith started to shift? Yeah. And just to add to that, Patriarchal Blessing talks about leading missionaries, insinuating like mission president you know, callings you in the future. To be a mission president. I would be, I would still, I might, <laughs> you might go, go back, back to be a mission president. I'm PSA like, to church headquarters. If you call Zach as a mission president, he might just go. That is the <laughs> trick. So there you have it. But kind of serious though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wanted to be a mission president's wife so bad. A mission president's wife. It's so insane. It's so a mission insane. president's wife just reduced. Yeah, to that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So about a year and you kind of have some context of like our upbringing, very, you know, centered around the church and had, you know, an amazing wedding day, temple ceiling. But yeah, so about a, I would say year and a half, two years in, Jacqueline started expressing a couple 
you know, light concerns of, you know, what about Noah's Ark? Did that really happen? The, you know, full flood and <laughs> leave it to Jack. <laughs> <laughs> she would. It was I'm like, I would have never. I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it was, you know, it was a, uh, it was a, you know, contained flood, you know, just the classic, like uh-huh. apologist responses. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, okay, well, who, who really cares? You know, the Bible is, you know, a little silly. And then it, you know, gradually became centered around lack of women representation in the church, the, you know, no mother in heaven, priesthood. And I I can't quite remember, we've been married over nine years now, what point it became, you know, a serious worry Mm -hmm. of mine. I do remember one conversation in particular. I was out in San Antonio working. She was back home and we had this argument over the phone late into the night. And I think that was kind of a wake up moment of, oh, wow, do I need to be a missionary to my wife? Is she actually going to, you know, get through this? Like these are reoccurring. They're not going away. These worries that she had. That's when things started. It was kind of just a monthly, I would say it would surface about once a month. And I would take the approach of trying to be teaching and guilting myself. Like, oh, we need to, I need to do a better job of being the, you know, priesthood holder of the household and conducting you know, scripture study and praying more. And so there was a mix of guilt, but also eventually, you know, some feelings of like betrayal where it's like, hold on a second. I thought, you know, that this is taking me totally off guard. You're supposed to be like, yeah, I didn't sign up for this. No way. Well, this is so interesting because I was hearing in your language, almost the exact same response we were talking about with your missionary people who came to you with this anti-Mormon literature Mm. And how you said, oh, I wish I could have, you know, listened. Right. But it's so interesting to see that literal training that you had been taught your whole life to not listen and rather to say, okay, this is a problem I need to solve. Mm -hmm. I need to push harder. I need to, you know, pray more. We need to be reading the scriptures more. How that's such a conditioned response to somebody expressing problems, concerns with Mormon doctrine, right. that's literally what you were taught as a missionary. And it was just reflecting later on in your marriage, which right. is, it makes sense because that's what you were taught to do. Yeah. Well, and you're just conditioned for your whole life to identify that as, oh, we're, we're not reading enough. We're getting lazy. Maybe we've been deceived a little bit. I mean, it's just not true. (laughs) Yeah, it's not, but it's, it makes a lot of sense why that is the response Mm -hmm. is to think, well, we just need to be doing more. We must be doing something wrong. I must be doing something wrong. She must be doing something wrong. If she's actually starting to really maybe question things. Yeah. She starts seriously questioning. You're feeling stressed, worried. Mm -hmm. What happens next? So she stopped wearing her garments, which is such a big deal for so many reasons, but also others can kind of virtue signal and people could see it identify, you know, yeah, it kind of puts you in the public arena of like, Oh, this is not just a personal issue between spouses, but it's a parents, friends start noticing that was extremely difficult for her because it was so personal. Others didn't really know how long this had been going on for how, how challenging it was. And um, I remember having a really difficult conversation with my mom and other family members who were thinking that they were coming from a place of love and concern. And again, just we're all kind of victims, kind of a strong word, but victims of that 
conditioning where yeah. it's like, Hey, red alert, not wearing their garments. Your, you know, temple covenants are being jeopardized. Like your eternal salvation's, you know, at stake. So we need to step in and, and help. That was tough because it kind of pitted me against, you know, Jacqueline and my mom in this, you know, weird in between phase. And obviously those who don't have like never been Mormon or experience was different. It's like, obviously you just side with your wife. Like that's such an easy, easy decision, but it, it was, you know, more complex than that. Yeah. I'm assuming most people listening, there might be people who are on the believing side of a mixed faith dynamic, but I'm assuming most people listening are likely on the post-Mormon side and maybe have a believing partner. Mm -hmm. But I think that's an interesting thing to lend sympathy and empathy to is not only were you feeling your own emotions about your partner making steps towards distancing from the church, but you're also having to mitigate the other believers in right. your lives and their responses toward it. And in a lot of ways, if you are still identifying as true believing and there's people coming to you, whether friends or family who are saying, Oh, this is such a terrible thing. You might think it's a terrible thing mm -hmm. that the garments have come off. Right. So you want to side with your partner, obviously. And as you said, that's, you know, probably you should, but it is way more complicated than that because you maybe start to identify more with people who believe the same as you. Which I did. Yeah. And it would just be, that sounds really hard. Uh -huh. And also just the fact of needing to answer for, and I think that might be particularly pronounced as a man who's still true believing, mm -hmm. kind of answer for the faithfulness of your family. Right. And feel responsible or accountable to the decisions that Jacqueline's making to other people outside right. of you too. Cause at that point I was still very much believing. And so she was wrong. Right. And I, I was correct in this, in this thinking. And it's also, this is why it's so difficult for believing Mormons to understand and relate to more nuanced or, you know, kind of like fringe or, you know, departing Mormons because they're living in a totally different headspace. They value different things. There's, something called Fowler stages of faith. There's five stages and not to go into too much detail, but like focusing on stage three and four. And I came to learn this and it was an extremely helpful tool through counseling where a, a stage three person, it's not hierarchical at all. It's just different frameworks, but they live in this binary, this very dualistic way of thinking. They value authority. They conform to authority more and it's right and wrong, true, untrue stage four, is usually kicked off with, you know, an unexpected faith crisis, and it's much more nuanced. Their framework is non-dualistic. It's valuing more of your own like authority, mm. not say like an authoritative figure like a prophet. Those two just clash. Those two parties. One thinks that they're helping, but really they're having the opposite effect. They're pushing uh -huh. those people further. Yeah. So I have total empathy for for that, and I'm glad that I've you know, acquired those tools to look back and say, you know, I, I, I get it. I was there. I was the leading the charge for, you know, Dualistic, to... binary mm -hmm. thinking. Yeah. 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 So she, Jacqueline chose to take off her garments. Family starts wondering, friends start wondering, mm -hmm. how does that then escalate? And what was it like for you? I mean, maybe that's what you mark as Jacqueline leaving. Was there a moment when it was like, oh, 
Yeah. She decided to leave. How did it lead up to that point? So we continued to go to church together. However, she was, her takeaways from church were very different than mine. It was very, what I thought, you know, negative and critical. She then, the purpose of going was probably just to give more of a voice to others that might've been in the same, same boat and help change things from within. But it got real, yeah, real scary. I mean, basically the future that I thought we would have started to be in question because I, I began to realize like, okay, she's probably not going to come back. And can I be married to someone who isn't in the church? Cause the other thing is you're, you're incredibly isolated in this time. Like you, you don't think anyone else is going through the, what you're experiencing. Can't really talk to anyone else because mm. they'll probably tell you, Hey, well, if you know, the church is true. So like you can't leave, like, yeah. like she's, and so, you didn't really have any friends in mixed faith <clears throat> dynamics. You didn't even no, have friends who had left. None. Yeah. No family members and all those that were, they were, you know, also tricked and didn't want to <laughs> connect with them. Yeah. So terrifying, dark, dark night of the soul. There was a point where we thought, can we make this work? Is separation going to be a better alternative? I remember she, I was out on a work trip in New York and actually saw the Book of Mormon musical. Oh, wow. And I was still in. But I guess, I mean, looking back, you know, open enough to, yeah, to see the music to do that. Yeah. And, but I hadn't started reading anything, but she had read the CES letter and was like, Hey, there's something I, I want you to read this. And I think the reason I accepted the invite was to, I had confidence that I'd be able to, I guess, prove to her like, Hey, this is, you know, garbage. This is anti Mormon. This is like some just Yahoo off of the internet. So I, I, I read it and then just everything totally unraveled and whole world just kind of came crashing down, which starting with the CES letter. Yeah. Yeah. And speak to that a little bit more because if I remember correctly, because I just listened back to Jacqueline's interview, she said from her perspective, there was a period of time where you were engaging with CES yep. letter, letter for my wife, rough stone rolling, all of these, you know, this literature, this history that had been huge for her leaving, mm -hmm. but she sensed that you were still hanging on. Still in. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that like? Yeah. And I appreciate you jogging my memory. Yeah. I, I read it. And when I say like unraveling, it was the first time where it was, I was kind of this moment of like reckoning, like, oh, wow, these are actually very valid points mainly because he's citing all of his, was Jeremy Reynolds citing every truth claim and why it needs to be in question and probably just isn't true to like firsthand accounts. You know, it was Joseph Smith papers, journal entries, discourses. That's not anti-Mormon literature. It's not anti-Mormon. And perhaps the commentary on it is, but when mm -hmm. you're actually looking at the sources, yeah. How do you refute you that that's what the source says? Yeah. So it was definitely very, very shocked, taken aback, like, oh, wow, this is, yeah, I need to like, give me a second to, mm -hmm. to, uh, research this more and find some answers. So yeah, we ordered a ton of books, uh, church history. I, I took the, the route of church history because I believed everything in a very much like literal sense, capital T truth, book of Mormon history, like it all actually happened. Once those truth claims, you know, started becoming questionable, I, 
Yeah, started off, I think, with uh, No Man Knows My History, Rough Stone Rolling, Letter for My Wife. We would, for example, to your, your point, we, you know, we'd both read No Man Knows My History, Plum Brody, and come up on very different sides. Where it was, we were still kind of diverging to where Jacqueline would be totally abhorred about polygamy, polyandry, what Joseph Smith was doing, just utter shock. And I was like kind of endeared and wow, had a bit more of an affinity towards Joseph Smith, which sounds really wrong, but in the sense of, wow, this man was incredibly complex and having the context where you grow up just seeing like Joseph Smith, like restoration movie that was like in the temple, very whitewashed, just clean faith promoting version of how his story happened. Yeah. And then you read something like No Man Knows My History or Rough Stone Rolling and realize like, whoa, this is messy. But I was still in that believing camp where I could make sense of it. That kind of apology, apologetic Mm -hmm. side of polygamy. You know, he was just like, you just do these, you know, outlandish like mental gymnastics to make it work. And that was, I'm sure, very frustrating for her. I mean, her like patience and just patience throughout the whole thing was, I'm like getting hit with wave of emotion right now, which yeah. uh, Let it come. You've never seen me cry. No, now I have. I I wish we we recorded this. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, what's coming up for you? Just because, again, I think I suppressed a lot of of this because it was so so hard. Yeah. And, um, but she was just so understanding and gave me the time to to process. And if she hadn't, I, I mean, I think we would have ended up in very different places and not, it's like serious stuff, like serious stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, people, um, you know, families are torn apart because of things like this. People take their lives over um, really heavy issues like this and just really grateful for how long suffering she was throughout my journey because she was kind of the forebearer like pioneer of of uh leaving i mean her experience was so lonely and um so so you know i'm having my my own experience and she had to not only hold her faith crisis and journey but also just you know kind of the judgment for me and from friends and family she's just she's incredibly strong um but yeah, that was that was tough to go through. Um, but she was also once I did kind of come to realize. I mean, it, it kicked off this just this this journey. If you're familiar with, uh, I think it's oh, what's his name, James something Campbell, the the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. I I remember just going through. I mean, it was hundreds and hundreds of hours over the the next like year and a half or so of research and reading and listening to podcasts, Mormon Matters, Mormon Stories, going to faith retreats, couples counseling. Again, like I'm, I'm trying to find any, just hold on to like any, just anything to like stay afloat and also prove that it, it still was true. Yeah. And you'd read something like, you know, oh great, like in sacred loneliness, mainly about polygamy and polyandry. And it was, it was like, okay, that was super wrong. Just, you know, he, he definitely messed up, but you know, he was still good in these other ways or you know, Book of Mormon probably isn't like true, but like we still got priesthood or prophets. And you'd kind of just check each off where it's like, oh my gosh, I think all of it is just not the way we, we thought. Yeah. You just, that kind of island just shrinks more and more. And you're just like trying to 
and eventually it just totally crumples. And so yeah, that, that was, that was tough. And fortunately, like finding the community through podcasts, I mean, Exmo, like TikTok wasn't really big at mm-hmm. that point. So it was mostly podcasts, Mormon stories, just all the academic, like I, I just, I felt too, that I had to defend my own standing like, Oh, Zach Hayward left. Like how? And just like I, was, you know, such a love my mission experience. Um, felt like I had to kind of back up where, where I found myself for my own sake, but also if it, you know, if someone did question. So anyway, yeah, no. rambling on, but um, no, thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate the way you spoke to how challenging it is personally, how challenging it is in a mixed faith dynamic. And I think it's really, it's really important to see I can relate to you in huge ways around how I feel towards Jacqueline and what she did for me, how I feel towards Tanner, our mutual friend who Tanner and I had a lot of mixed faith dynamic challenges and just feeling a lot of, for me, and I don't mean to project onto your experience, but it's really hard not to feel guilt and shame. And you're already feeling guilt and shame because you're maybe questioning the church yourself in retrospect when you end up on the side of it that we have. There's a ton of guilt and shame for things that I did as a believer and for invalidation and, you know, not being able to be what people need. And I think what I sense in your experience is once you started leaving and questioning, then you have sympathy for what Jacqueline did alone. Yeah. And then she was able to support you through it with patience, with love, which you maybe don't feel like you could have offered her. Mm-hmm. And it makes me really fucking upset at the church, to be mm-hmm. frank, because I think we're good people. Right. And yeah. we, I think, are... I mean, I'll speak about my experience with you. You're an incredibly wonderful listener and validator. You have all these things in you, but you had so much conditioning mm-hmm. that was kind of disallowing that maybe in certain contexts. And that feels really shitty to have to kind of reconcile right. especially when you go through it yourself and you realize oh this is what you were going through and you didn't have the support that you're now offering me you know mm, yeah it's incredibly hard and I appreciate you speaking to it so candidly so to kind of wrap things up yeah, though please. with our story so yeah eventually just kind of came to the conclusion that okay based on the actual history of how things happen like none of it is true and so at that point, similar to what Jacqueline and many others do, it's like, okay, I don't need the Book of Mormon to be actually true, but I can still, you know, extract, you know, important, uh, you know, scriptures and, and like direction from it. I can still go to church, be in this nuanced space. And I remember trying to do that. It was difficult. You know, you're, you're bearing your testimony in a bit more of a progressive sense and, and just kind of getting weird looks and realizing like, oh, there's, and I think there's, pockets of certain wards where that is is doable but Mm -hmm. you know in Provo Utah and this was also during the pandemic going through all this we weren't going to church more isolated which was nice because you had I had I was able to kind of formulate my own take a break you know uh opinions on what I was all this information I was consuming I remember trying to make it work renewing a temple recommend so that I could attend my brother's wedding and also Jacqueline's sister's wedding they're not getting married to each other but had their own separate weddings I went to the interview over Zoom and tried to be kind of vulnerable with the stake leader because he he asked, he was like, well, why do you want this recommend? He kind of went away from the script and he's like, I just feel impressed to 
ask you, you know, why, why, why do you like want this? And it was really annoying. Cause it's like, well, like, that's dude, not a temple question. obviously that's, <laughs> you're not supposed to ask me that. Like, yeah. like what kids stick to the script. <laughs> and he was like spinning it off as like the spirit's just impressed upon me. And it's like, come on, dude, my wife hasn't gone to church in a year. My Bishop has just talked to you. It's obvious mm-hmm. we're living in a mixed faith marriage, but he just kind of grilled me. And I told him, I was like, look, I, to be honest with you, thinking it was a safe space, don't believe in the literalness of the temple ceiling, but the ritual and ordinance that my family members are going to go through is incredibly important. Like that's like the capstone, like this is it. And I still hold immense value for our own temple ordinance and ceiling. And I know how important this is to my brother and my sister-in-law and their fiancés. And that's why I'm going. And he just like, wouldn't really, that wasn't good enough. And that was, that was tough. It was like, whoa, these guys are Mm. like, this is, this is no good. And um, I have a very sincere desire that might be more complicated, but it, there's really, truly, literally no space for that. It's like, sorry, that's not, that's not what the questions are. That's not what you need to, it's gatekeeping very literally. Yeah. And up until that point, hadn't felt much bitterness, but it was, you know, because then I start <laughs> to your, you know, on, you know, social and you, know, you kind of get glimpses of, you know, get the, you know, general conference uh, highlights and takeaways and realizing like, whoa, my family is getting the most damaging messaging from church authority on how to engage with me. Those that are leaving, questioning, this is how you're supposed to react to them is so dismissive, so condescending, so off that I I can't, it's like, have you ever talked to a nuanced Mormon or someone who's struggling? Like, are you kidding me? Are you, are you mad? This is like, come on, we can do better than this. Like talk with someone who's left before you just go up on the pulpit and yeah. start sub- like prescribing consult with literally absolute one person. nonsense. Uh-huh. And that's one thing you can tell, like I'm still kind of, I get activated by it because it's driven a, a major wedge in family relationships yeah. and people that I love most. Yeah. Um, it's upsetting to say the least. Yeah. It's infuriating. Yeah. And you started to see maybe you were trying to carve out a space where you could hold a lot of respect and love right. and even value even though you maybe viewed them differently in certain rituals, even in just Mormonism generally. Uh-huh. And then it's frustrating because you're like, at least just let me do that. Right. Why are you now pushing me even further away? Why would you mm-hmm. want someone like me to, why are you trying to make it teams? Why are you trying to make right. it something that you were so desperately trying to not let it become? Right. And that's really upsetting yeah. when you have true believing family members and you are wanting to show levels of support and respect. And then from the very pulpit and the mouths of the church leaders, mm-hmm. they are really actively disallowing that kind of thinking right. that you were trying to practice. Yeah. Yeah. Condemning it. And that's uh, that probably is, if I'm remembering correctly, what motivated me to, to start my TikTok channel, which I'm no longer at all active on, but to help bridge the gap between, you know, faith believing Mormons and those that are in question because there's so many. I mean, there's so many people who are so leaving many. in droves. More and like, more every day, yeah. And you realize like, oh, I'm not alone in this. There's people from all different stages of life who are struggling and questioning and yeah, felt the need to kind of create more of a space. So, and, and on the flip side too, like people that do leave who 
are completely wrecking those and like ridiculing those that stay. And it's just kind of the opposite side of the coin where it's like, well, hold on a second. Can we, can we create some more compassion amongst the two, two groups? And that helped, you know, me process. And so, yeah, still really challenging, but like, fortunately, Jack and I were able to, you know, grow much stronger and develop and understand through a lot of coaching and practice. And then, you know, having such a incredible like friend group too, where we could lean on each other and relate, mm-hmm. help through. I mean, one of the, <laughs> I have to share the story, but when we were in Hawaii, you know what I'm going to talk about? Yes, <laughs> you know, you have to share it. So we're traveling in Hawaii. We're all in a van. Um, I'm reading Zealot. That was the other thing. It's like, okay, once Mormon church just frankly just wasn't like true then it was like, oh, at least, you know, we've got Jesus, right? Yeah. Like, he, I'm a Christian like, the savior, at the very least, yeah. <laughs> redeemer, like, we're solid there. Like, resurrection, atonement. And then, then you know. Then he reads some Reza Aslan. Yeah, he reads some Reza Aslan and damn it. It probably didn't happen. And so, and then you read God and, like, you realize, whoa, and everything is just Everything on slowly head. crumbles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I remember reading uh Zell, which I highly recommend, but he... You were reading it on the beach, yeah. and then we got in the car. We got in the car, there. and I'm like, guys, I don't think Jesus is resurrected. And Bentley's driving. I think I'm in the passenger seat, uh-huh. and he looks over and, and is like, that is earth-shattering news. <laughs> like, totally took me at face value. Took you at your word. That, that was, was the moment his Christianity deconstructed. Th- That's all he needed. Was. And, and I didn't need Cal- to read the book, just like had to hear the words from your lips. <laughs> just, that was it. And I'm like, well, I mean. <laughs> You're like, we wait, could, wait, wait. There might be an argument Do your own both. research. And then Callan was in the backseat like, well, come on. Like it's some like <laughs> secular historian's like point of view. That's it. And you know, forever remember. But um, yeah. And so just going through that as friends and being able to talk about it is, is very unique. Absolutely. Too. The other story I wanted to tell quickly is I talked about this on my Mormon stories interview, but you came, Jacqueline had left and we were all progressive Mormons together, me, you and Bentley. Mm-hmm. And you came to San Francisco on a work trip. So yeah. just us three met up and went to dinner and we went to dinner and we came back to our apartment and you were like, Hey, I, I read the CES letter and you're like, I don't think the church is true. I was like, fuck. <laughs> I guess I, the church is probably not true. Oh, man. Like, well. So we read the CES letter and we're like, Bentley. oh, I guess the church isn't true. Just have all your garments in a pile just <laughs> yeah. ready. Like, all right. Zach said the word. But it's funny to think about the, the value of having people pretty close to your same phase. Uh-huh. Because I think you, Bentley, and I were all very, very similar track where we were kind of discovering and ready for certain things at literally the exact same time. And you were doing so much research that Bentley and I would just be like, all right, tell us what Zealot says. Okay, it says a lot about Christ. Sound checks out. <laughs> <laughs> so you were our resident historian in that friend group. Another, makes me, so another funny story. We're, at, we're going to Ken's parents and we get out of the car because we're meeting Ken and Cal for something. And I come out and I've got like a toothpick in my mouth. And Ken's mom is like, what, what, is he smoking? And Ken immediately is like, no, mom. He's literally a church historian. <laughs> and <laughs> I look day. over and I'm like, hey, Wendy, like, yeah, I. You could I, be. I, I might you should be. be. <laughs> no. And she, I think to this day, she, she might, still like, thinks actually, I am. A church historian. <laughs> 
But I do want to, I, I, I took it very seriously. You took it very seriously. And yeah. In a way that I don't relate to where I was like, this doesn't feel right for me. And that felt like enough. And yeah. I think that says a lot about our upbringings and a lot about the way you related to Mormonism right. was you had to prove every last single tiny, tiny point right. until you just had nothing left to hang on to. Uh-huh. And that sounds deeply traumatic in a way that for me, I mean, yeah, history played its role, but I was kind of like, yeah, I don't think this is working for me anymore. I don't think this feels right. And it sounds like you didn't, you couldn't even allow yourself that Mm -mm. you had to like know for a fact. And that's a huge burden. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's so nice to do this with friends because I know a lot about you and your story because we lived it together, Mm -hmm. but being able to hear you speak to it, you speak to it so beautifully. And it's really special for me to be able to like learn more and have this kind of conversation. So I really appreciate it. I'm just going to kind of rapid fire some of these and get your thoughts. Question number one, how the hell do I get my husband to stop paying tithing? (laughs) (laughs) It's a good starter Uh. one. I mean, I think this speaks to what a lot of questions are asking about, which is what happens when you're in a mixed faith dynamic and, you know, maybe you even support each other in separate beliefs, but there's a rub around paying tithing or baptizing your kids. Did you and Jackie ever have to navigate that? And if so, what did it look like? Yeah. Again, I, I don't, I definitely don't want to make light of any of what we're talking about because it is so serious and like yeah. earth shattering news. It's earth shattering um, news. But in, yeah, said it best. <laughs> he, he really did because I mean, these are, yeah, these are very serious issues. So, but we're, it just shows I'm in such a different place now totally. where I'm not, you know, consuming the same amount of church history and like info that I was and, and everyone's kind of journey, you know, different stages are going to be, be different, but yeah, with tithing, I mean, relating to how I was when I was in and Jacqueline was out, there's taking the approach of like, we need to pay tithing because it's what the Lord told us to do. Like, it, it doesn't work. You're going to just be at odds with each other forever. I think it really takes one, you know, in this case, husband to engage with, like truly listen and engage with, okay, why are you concerned about this? Like, what is... Like, help me, mm-hmm. you know, understand, like, meet you where you're at. And I can guess that it's probably because the church is Enzyme Fund. It has $140 billion something dollars in it. And uh, there's serious concern. It's like, why, why would I give my money to just kind of pad the church's investment portfolio or build, you know, 100 more temples that not many people are in? That, so there's serious concern. But yeah, I think it's just like actually engaging with the concern and maybe reading up on it. And then, I mean, you can even come to some sort of, I don't know, compromise of, because you can't, you also can't like, well, let's do 5% to a charity that you want and I'll do 5% to the temple. Cause that, that's not the law of tithing. Yeah. It's they 10%. Won't let you. Yeah. One other alternative is just giving 10% to something that you both feel comfortable on. And then just hope that the next temple recommend interview, they don't grill you with that question because they're not supposed to. And everyone's belief on, yeah. All those questions is is different. Yeah, so your partner and could say yes, even if you're not technically quote a full tithe payer, if they feel good about the way that they're engaging with right. tithing. And again, it's like not to endorse lying, but it, there's there's ways everyone's doing backflips to like 
make sense of, of yeah. this. And I think there's space yeah, for that. I agree. I agree. Do a backflip. I like what you <laughs> just do a backflip. I like what you said about engaging. I think oftentimes these issues can feel incredibly divisive. Right. And it's like, well, why the hell are you paying tithing? As I can absolutely understand, I would feel the exact same way. And it's difficult. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of patience to engage. But mm-hmm. if you're able to engage, hopefully there can be some sort of compromise or some sort of, you know, willingness on your partner's behalf to listen. Right. So I think that's great advice. And for those sensitive issues too, it's, you know, you obviously never want to attack or like belittle even, you know, insinuating that, but like using for me language, like this is where I'm at. This is why it's difficult. And hopefully that's reciprocated. Absolutely. I've been out of the church for nine to 10 years. My wife is still very active. Sometimes it feels like there's no hope that her shelf will break. What's the best thing I can do to still love and support, but to also still encourage her to question the church? Mm. Curious what Jackie did for you as far as writing that line of, I support you. However, are you willing to engage with the CES letter? Yeah. You know, that's, that's a fine line to walk. So right. on the believing side of it, what did you experience? Yeah. And first of all, like heart goes out to whoever's in that dynamic. So hard. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, incredibly difficult. Um, and good on you for nine to 10 years of managing mixed yeah. faith. That takes a lot. And I think that shows a lot of strength in the foundations of the relationship. Right. Yeah. I mean, differentiation comes to mind, just being comfortable with your differences, which is such a hard, so hard place to get to growing up in the church because you're just not even taught how to do that. Reflecting on what Jacqueline did well was one, just giving me time, which mm. obviously in this case, that's true. But also because the person who is out in this relationship probably is pretty confident in their position of like, yeah, I know it's not yeah, how it is. Um, yeah. And I wish my partner was able to you know, see where I'm at. There's a, a quote, actually, it's J. Ruben Clark who said it. Mm. And uh, if we have the truth, it cannot be harmed by investigation. If we have not the truth, it ought to be harmed. Mm. So those that are in, if it's true, what what fear do you have in like proving that it's not totally. true? Especially if it's coming from like your spouse. Yeah, totally. And I think maybe that that speaks really well to intentionality Mm -hmm. and how a partner can feel an intention of read this. So you think the same thing as me versus, Hey, I know this might feel scary or like you've been told this is anti-Mormon literature, but would you be willing to read this, this, you know, this meant something to me. Would you be willing to read this and talk about it with me? So I think there's maybe ways you can engage that seem more approachable and that don't have the intention necessarily of, I want you to leave the church, but hey, it it would be awesome if I felt like you could read this. Are is that something you're willing to do? Right. And you know, inviting and just sharing. Yeah, I learned a lot from this that I didn't know. Right. That kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean it's interesting because this quote that comes to mind is still kind of hard to like admit or relate to, but I remember John Delin sharing his experience. And like disciplinary counsel and like leaving mm. the church. And he said, the gift of a faith crisis is, is the rest of your life. And I think that is beautiful in the sense where it's like there, there is 
beauty and opportunity and like closeness and if if that's where things go so much of unfortunately church's messaging is centered around fear it's like if you leave where are you going to go what you know do you have? Yeah. what do you what do you have without the the church and that's just simply not true i think that that's something we kind of were talking about since i've been here on this trip the other night is that it's a really difficult line between finding certain things out for yourself and really desperately wanting that for other people and recognizing the freedom of thinking and all these things that come with the faith transition. And it requires an incredible amount of patience and differentiation, as you're saying, to have someone that close to you as a partner, Mm -hmm. a life partner. And it's not like you even probably want them to leave just so they're more like you. You just, it's, on this side of things, it's really difficult not to like knock down the door. Right. Like, Come on. I promise, yeah. you know, like uh-huh. just engage. So yeah, I think it's super case by case. You and Jacqueline went to therapy while you were mixed faith. Is that correct? Yeah. And I feel like that's always just a very good place to be <laughs> in oh, any relationship at mixed faith, especially. I, you just don't know what you don't know in these situations and going to couples counseling therapy I don't know if I can I mean like Janice Spangler was a godsend for us and learning how to view the other person and see where they're where they're at and getting the right tools and like books and framework was crucial in our experience I mean it's part of that hero's journey like you can't force a faith journey on someone else they Mm. have to come to that point on their own and that can take nine years yeah it can take a long time yeah you never know which is hard and requires a lot of patience right um this final question says (laughs) this is the one i was talking about the other night oh yeah says have you ever met tom cruise oh man (laughs) let me tell you who wrote that in (laughs) catelyn do you think it's catelyn I can tell you the whole story. You have we have met another. Tom I have met Tom Cruise. Not only did we meet, but we. I mean, we had like a. It was like a full blown conversation. You had a moment we with like this guy. Hugged. We. I, I totally. It was at a Broadway show, Hollywood, and uh, totally like called. You him were out. a male cheerleader at this time. If we want to really go into it, I'll go into it. So <laughs> I was a male cheerleader. Tell cheerleader. Us. It means my football buddies, senior year, with the whole the whole squad. He walks in. We're, we're at Beauty and the Beast. Everyone's kind of like, "Whoa, did he?" Did, was that Tom Cruise? And then I yell out, it's Tom Cruise. Like, and he has to stand up and like wave and then intermission, go up to him and just like, it's probably like this guy, it was, it was but he talked to you. You had a full oh, yeah. conversation. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, this does actually apply because Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. There you go. Full circle. So did you talk any, any faith, swap any faith stories with Mr. Tom Cruise? Uh, no. <laughs> major regret. You're like, uh, Hey, uh, I'm in a cult too. <laughs> <laughs> like, By the way, Tom. Well, I have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering who wrote that question. Oh man, I mean, my vote is on Callan or Jed. Callen Does or Jed, Jed know the Tom Cruise thing? Yeah, I, I guess I've just told everybody. Like it's uh, seems like a Jed question. <laughs> <I know. laughs> oh, Thank you stuff. so much, Zach. I really, really appreciate this. I think that there is so much relevance in you speaking towards the experience on your side of things in a mixed faith dynamic, and. Yeah, I think both you and Jacqueline have just been through so much. And I think it's really beautiful to take what you learned through incredibly difficult experience and be able to share that as wisdom for the tons and tons and tons of people who are still very much in the thick of it. 
Thanks, Haley. Thanks for being here. Thanks for coming to Girls Camp. This was a treat. I and really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. It was great to talk to you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk next week. Bye. G I R.